Welcome to Let's Pause, a podcast that gives us the opportunity to do just that. In a society that seems to only be gaining speed, leading to rushed decisions and results, we're pushing the pause button on life to explore, study, and dig a little deeper on a variety of subjects. So thank you for joining us today as we pause. We're glad everyone has joined us today. Mark and I have discussed about why are we doing a special tribute on September 11th and and big events like that. And September 11th was a big event in both of our lives and as, as it was in the entire world and everyone who was around during that time. And we want to take the moment and just reflect on that. And really, it's we want to pause and remember that and remember why it was big. And so we're going to get right into that. Mark, what was September 11th like for you? So let me take you into my life during September 11, 2001. I was in the Air Force. I was active duty military. I was stationed at the Air Force Academy as a faculty member uh, teaching at the Behavioral Sciences and Leadership Department. But I was farmed out for four months for a manning assistance to Eltis, Oklahoma. And I was running the mental health clinic there in Eltis. And Eltis is a, a really small town. The biggest thing that they had going was a nearby town pie festival that I attended about two months into my Manning assist there, the Hollis Pie Festival. They had an A&W root beer and a pizza hut, and they were hoping someday to get like a small grocery store, right? So it was, it was pretty major digs in Altus, Oklahoma. And I was there, I was at the three and a half month mark. So I literally had two weeks left of this Manning assistance. It was the fall and my teaching schedule was going to kick off at the Air Force Academy. I was anxious to get back to start writing and reviewing my syllabi, to picking out my books, to meeting some of my students and all the rest. And I had a nine o'clock patient that no-showed in the mental health clinic. So I was sitting out there in my uh, mental health office watching the news, excited about a patient that hadn't showed because it meant I had another hour to work on my notes or prep for something. And I watched the first plane hit the tower. And then I was sitting there thinking to myself, gosh, there's this old photograph of some old biplane or something that flew into some tower in New York or Chicago way back when. I can't remember the details. Probably our listeners are immediately coming to mind. And I remember thinking, gosh, that's crazy that that would happen again something must have been wrong with the navigational system or maybe a pilot became incapacitated. As I was thinking that, I watched the second plane hit and I immediately thought, that can't be a coincidence. Something horrible is happening. I don't know what, but that can't be a coincidence. And within an hour, I was in my med group commander's office and he said, Mark, I know you're about to go back to Colorado Springs, but I have to send you to New York City. We have been tasked to identify a medical team to go there to do body retrieval. And you are my OIC, my officer in charge of body retrieval for New York City. And I remember thinking, I can't do that. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to get home. My wife, I had two young children. My wife was pregnant with our third. And I just want to get back to Colorado Springs and figure out what my life is like. I don't want to do this. And I, there was a, certainly a sense of, of service and obligation that was tied into to that event, but I really didn't want to do it. And I guess fortunately, in hindsight, 
And this is a, a graphic reality of what happened on that day and the nature of the destruction. But after a few more hours, we heard back from medical teams that were forwarded in New York City who said, we don't have any bodies. The heat and the pressure of the collapse of these structures is such that we don't have bodies to retrieve. And so literally my TDY, my temporary duty status to New York City as an officer in charge of body retrieval was canceled, not because of my protests or because of anything else going on other than the fact that we didn't find any bodies or enough bodies to send a team to actually retrieve them. So I know that was a long story, but so that's where I was on September 11. What was going on with your life? It was very different than that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to wipe the sweat off my palms just listening to your story there, Mark. Uh, literally, and I was 11 days into a leadership role of an organization. It was a nonprofit, continuing care retirement community, and I was 31, and I was new inheriting an organization that needed a lot of work. It was nine o'clock in the morning. I happened to be in my office and uh, my wife called and she never has called me at work, never calls me at work. In fact, we created a rule that if she needs me, she's got to call twice so that we know it's important. And she's even like, I've gotten a voicemail where she's forgotten that rule. We're like, Hey, I'm in the back of an ambulance with one of your, one of our kids. And so like her calling at work, it's, you know, something big is happening. And so And she said to me, she said, get in front of the TV. I said, what? She goes, get in front of the TV. She goes, I just watched the second tower get hit. I'm like, hit with what? She goes, an airplane just flew into the second World Trade Center. So there were three people in my office. We went around to where a TV was in the beauty shop. And there were, you know, the beautician was there, you know, working with a couple of residents and and you know the maintenance director George and I and a couple other people just stood there and stared and that was kind of the day trying to provide comfort there was no understanding it was just trying to make sure that we were okay I remember talking to my boss who was sitting on a tarmac uh, was trying to figure out how to get off that plane as the planes were all getting grounded I remember the uh, just the level of eerie quietness throughout the entire campus and there was I remember TVs being on and it disrupting the spirit of the campus the way it was supposed to you know creating the somber feeling and you know the generation that we were caring for at that time had all been through Pearl Harbor yeah and so I'll I'll mention this again it's um uh, later but you know, I had a resident come by my office and say to me, her name was Barbara, I can picture it perfectly. She's saying, this is how I felt when I found out that Pearl Harbor was attacked. Mm-hmm. That sunk in because I just never thought I would experience something that that generation had experienced. And so that was that was powerful. And then, you know, eventually connecting with my family when I got home, because this is, you know, before cell phones and, you know, people were trying to call loved ones in New York City. They, they were residents' kids. We had a, we did have a residence grandson who worked at Windows of the World. He was, uh, he was at work. He died. You know, so I was connected with that family. 
and so they lost a loved one there. So that was a, a close connection with uh, the organization that I was working with. What I remember after somehow I was able to connect with my all my family, I listened to the radio the whole night. I found an AM station that was like live feed the whole night. And so at like four or five o'clock in the morning, I think they found somebody in the rubble that was still alive, which was an amazing blessing. And But I just, that's kind of the journey that we were on that day. I think probably all Americans, we were all just glued mm-hmm. to the news. Yeah. Like that was our only conduit yeah. to some kind of situational awareness about what had happened, why it had happened, and what was happening next. Yeah. We want to pause and reflect on this event and and take the opportunity to hear a couple other stories. And the first one, we'd like to introduce Pat Auk, who was in Hawaii on December 7th, 1941. She's a resident of Southern Pines. Her father was the commander of Fort Ruger, and she was there. So we're going to hear her story. Well, I am so excited, Jeff, ever since you mentioned that we were going to be able to have Pat as a guest. I've been so excited to have this conversation. So let's let's jump right into it. We are recording big life events, and we understand you were in Hawaii in 1941. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, Pat. I was at Fort Ruger, Hawaii, which is an army post by Diamond Head. My mother and I walked down the street to see down to Pearl Harbor because there were only two hotels on the beach at that time. And you could see directly down, it's about 10 miles. And all we saw was the big black smoke coming up where the first wave had come in. And we had seen the, the smoke coming up and we were waiting for a, a bus to take us up to Diamond Head. And in Diamond Head, they had the arsenal for the big guns that they had in there and also the guns behind our house. And that's what we had as a, as a bomb shelter. And they took my two brothers when they conscripted him, them to go dig foxholes or something, I don't really remember. And my mother and my sister and I were in this bomb shelter in, in where they used to keep the arsenal for these big guns. And we were close enough that uh, I was worried about the Japanese coming up on, on knocking on my door. <laughs> um, yeah, my father was regular army, and we had been there, oh, over a year, two years, I think, when Pearl Harbor happened. And I had gone to school, elementary school there. And the interesting part to me is that I was in the, what, fifth grade, sixth grade, and my best friend, her name was Lois Loper at that time. Uh, we became very close. And I still keep in touch with her today. She's in Madison, Wisconsin. So it's, I've had a long friendship with her. Pat, what do you, what are some things that you remember specifically about 
you know, like how you might have found out that it was happening and then being shuttled to the bomb shelter? Well, first of all, the Navy used to do a lot of testing and projects out on the ocean that we would hear the bombs falling all the time. So we were rather used to that. And my father gets up early in the morning and he heard that but didn't think much about it until an orderly came and he was to report immediately. And he he was to go up. There's a little building in the tippy top of, uh, of Diamond Head. And that's where his command was. And then uh, Dad told us that to get up and get ready, that a bus was coming for us. It was a trek, really. And... Mother and I went back to the house and got ready to go. And, and uh, I had my, my dog. I was worried about what we were going to do with him. My two brothers and my sister and I got ready and to go. And the truck came and the truck dropped my dog off at a lower level where they put up some barbed wire to hold the pets of the, all the women and children who were going up to the bomb shelter too. From then on, we were in that shelter and we went out to get some fresh air somewhere along the line. And then we were told to get back in. And I think that's when the second wave came in, the planes came in. And of course, I was in the shelter, so I didn't actually see anything there. We had had rumors beforehand that about a war, and we knew it was going to happen. And but it was always over there, over there. They never imagined they'd come as far as Pearl Harbor. Pat, sometimes during that time, I know school children would practice air raid drills in other parts of the country. Is that something that you ever did when you were growing up? Yeah, well, when uh, we stayed in that, that uh, arsenal in the Diamond Head for several, well, I think it was about two weeks or so, Dad wouldn't let us go home because it was too dangerous. The soldiers were so frightened and there was the blackout. But eventually, they opened the school, but it was only half a day because they had taken part of the school for something else. For that half a day, all we did was practice the bomb shelter and how to get into it, uh, how to get under your desk and that sort of thing. And because we thought we were leaving right away, why my mother said that I didn't have to go anymore. I didn't go to what was at seventh grade at all, practically. Pat, I know you said that um, it was difficult from Diamond Head and also because you were sequestered into this shelter. Do you recall seeing anything about the attack and kind of what was happening there? Or was it really just what the adults were telling you about what was what was taking place and what had happened? Well, first of all, there were lots of rumors going around. And uh, 
you didn't know what was true and what wasn't. My dad took an inspection trip and I went with him and we went to the other side of the island and there's a small Air Force base there. And there was one building that was housing the, the soldiers there, the airmen. And they had moved just the day before on Saturday to this brand new building. And the brand new building was demolished, but the old one was still there. Dad picked up a piece of a zero. It was tinny and it had uh, wires screwed on it. And we picked up that. And then he also gave me a um, piece of a bomb that was in the perfect shape of an N for Nipponese. And they are the artifacts that I have. And now I give it to my children and every one of them has taken it for show and tell at school. And my grandchildren, and now I'm on to the great grandchildren are taking it. Wow. But that was something to see the trouble that they had there and the demolishment of that Air Force base. Pat, I'm curious, when you were in the shelter, what were you thinking? It was hard being in that shelter with nothing to do. And I didn't have my dog with me. I was worried about him. And uh, we listened, would listen to as much of the radio as we could to get the word of what had happened. Pat, on, de on December 7th each year, what are your thoughts? You know, what kind of goes through your mind? And this is going to be the 80th year since, yeah, yeah. No, she just she just covered her mouth for our listeners. <laughs> well, I, I'm always surprised how people really don't remember Pearl Harbor anymore. The, every time my children and grandchildren take that, those artifacts to school, they said, Pearl Harbor, you know, where's that? And they don't know anything about it. And that always surprises me. Of course, my good friend Lois and I always get together and chat about where she was and what she was doing that day. That was fun. I'm always surprised how, how much the, the children, my children, get out of it. I've had several of them have done book reports and all kinds of reports at school, and they send me copies. It's just interesting. But they say, too, that when they bring this up in the classroom, nobody remembers what it was, really. What did Christmas look like in the bomb shelter? It wasn't much, I can tell you. Well, first of all, I had a birthday and my one to celebrate it there in the bomb shelter. And my mother got a cake and ice cream and everything. We went up there and they decided they worried about the gas attack. So they wanted to know if the place where we were, if it was safe for gas. Well, they put the bombs or whatever they were inside the shelter. And of course it didn't get out by my birthday. So we had to go to another part of Diamond Head for that. That could have been quite the birthday celebration if you had lit, lit a big candle uh, cake or something around <laughs> that. 
I don't even remember anything about Christmas. I don't think we had any presents or trees or anything. Yeah, I think uh, I can't even imagine the shock or the, you're still reeling. You know, it was only barely two weeks earlier, so. Yeah. Pat, I know that I have some relatives who ended up with a lot of hardship at the hands of the Japanese. They were living in Indonesia and they were taken into some POW camps and they, for the rest of their lives, uh, those that survived have held on to some pretty negative feelings about the Japanese. I'm just curious what your thoughts have been over time about that, if that's ever played a, you know, an issue for you or your parents. Well, I can tell you, my husband decided to take me back to Hawaii for our 25th wedding anniversary and to really celebrate. We went to the, the hotel, I'm drawing a blank on the name, it's the pink hotel on the beach. We were going to stay there. First of all, we couldn't hardly find it. There's so many buildings growing up around it. But we finally got there and we went in the front door and up the steps and all of a sudden the concierge and the, the bellhops, everybody, stand back, stand back. And so we, you know, moving back against the wall and I see this black limousine pull up and it was the young prince had gotten married. And of course, at this time, the the Japanese owned that hotel and he was going on his honeymoon there. And I turned to my husband and I said, the last time I was here, they were bombing us and now we have to stand back as they came in. And I had very definite ideas. I really didn't care for the Japanese at all. Until my husband, uh, he did overseas work and his, one of his good friends was Japanese and he would go over to visit him and he would come and he would visit us and he got to be a very good friend of the family. And I thought, that's really strange how I changed because I really didn't like them at all when I was over there. I, I, in school, you. I had all of them in the classroom, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Hawaiians, all that in there. And it just never bothered me until Pearl Harbor Day. Yeah, thank you, Pat. Jeff and I have talked before about other topics where it's so easy to have negative feelings about ideas, but really hard to hate people. And so once you put a human face and build a relationship around it, it sort of melts the idea away and you, you see them for who they are uh, and you probably see them that they're just like you. So anyways, I appreciate you sharing that. What's the saying that you can't hate anybody up close? I think that is wisdom that we as a world can benefit from on a regular basis. That's true. Well, Pat, this was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. <laughs> Jeff, what an absolute privilege to have Pat with us today. I so rarely have an opportunity to talk to someone of her generation and certainly to then talk with someone of her generation about what is arguably the most significant event of that generation. What did you think? 
as always, I'm just humbled by the willingness for someone to share that information and having worked with many folks from that generation over the years, for them to tell their stories and where they were and the sacrifices they made for the greater good. And just hearing someone who was there when all of, I can just picture those black and white reels that we saw in school, you know, of the Arizona tipping over and sinking and how quickly it sank. And, and just to have somebody who was there is humbling to me. I have heard and watched a number of World War II specials that have covered these events. And usually they interview sailors and soldiers that were on the ground talking about, or military strategists talking about the Japanese invasion and what was happening. I rarely hear the human story of, well, what if you were an American living on the island? What was it like then? And in this instance, as a young girl finding herself being sequestered into a bunker and having to live there for two or three weeks over her birthday, over Christmas, and having that perspective or that optic as a young person, I thought that was fascinating. I also think that she was, that she remembers the fear that they had at the time. And I also really appreciate that she connects with a friend that she knew at the time every year. And they're still deep, there's a deep friendship there. And it'll be 80 years this year. And I think my favorite piece of wisdom that she shared is you can't hate anyone up close. Yeah, Jeff, I think that was really the takeaway message. And it permeates so much more of our conversations when it comes to friction points between people or groups of people. That advice shows that, hey, we have more in common than we don't. And so we need to work to get close to one another in order to make sure that we are nurturing the humanity of this world. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. I thought it was also a very interesting parallel or between her experience and an experience we're going to hear about in just a couple of moments. And that had to do with, this is a quote from Pat, they never expected them to hit the U.S., she was talking about, oh, well, we were, they were talking about rumors of war and, and as a young person, knowing that we might have to go to war at some point, but it was a faraway place. It was a distant place. We never thought that the Japanese would strike our actual soil. And that's, I think, a common parallel to what happened later in 9-11, where we thought our nation was invulnerable, both at December 7 as well as September 11. And we never expected there to be such a massive strike at home. I thought that was just a really very interesting parallel between these two events. I agree. And I think that this is a perfect time for us to introduce our next guest. She is retired Brigadier General Dana Bourne. She was a 1983 distinguished graduate from the U.S. Air Force Academy. She went on to hold a variety of positions within the Air Force as an officer, ultimately earning her Ph.D. in Industrial and Organizational Psychology from Penn State. She has held numerous positions. Only a few will I highlight for her introduction. One as a speechwriter and policy analyst and ultimately the aide of the Secretary of the Air Force. Her exceptional career culminated in her post as the Dean of Faculty for the U.S. Air Force Academy. And I found a great quote from Lieutenant General Mike Gould, who was the Air Force Academy superintendent. Upon her retirement, he said, she was undoubtedly one of the most influential and innovative deans in the Academy's history. Since General Bourne has retired, she accepted a position with the Harvard Kennedy School of Government in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she sits as the chair of the Senior Executive Fellows Program. 
faculty advisor for the Black Family Graduate Fellows and is a lecturer in public policy. She is also a distinguished fellow with the Howe Institute, whose mission is, and I'm quoting, to build and nurture a culture of moral leadership, principled decision-making, and values-based behavior, ultimately with the goal of elevating humanity writ large. Ironically, Jeff, the Howe Institute is also dedicated to charging us all to pause, asserting that when we pause, we begin. I went to their website, and you can find a pause assessment online at thehowinstitute.org. Sadly, I only scored a 69 out of 100, which is proof that I both need to continue listening to our own podcast, as well as probably paying more attention to ways to pause. Now, there are lots of reasons that Dr. Bourne would be an outstanding guest for us. She was the commander of the 11th Mission Support Squadron at Bowling Air Force Base, which sits right across the Potomac from the Pentagon. Furthermore, her two daughters were in the Pentagon daycare on September 11th at 9.37 a.m. when the plane slammed into the building. Unbelievable background. Really fascinating. So excited to have her. General Bourne, welcome. Thank you so very much. What a wonderful career. We've had a chance to walk through some of the high points in your journey that you've navigated. Welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you here. Thanks, uh, Mark. And, and Jeff, it's great to be part of this conversation with you. And I love how you opened that with, you know, your journey. Uh, and, and all of us know that journeys are not linear. We definitely have some uh, curves and twists and, and bumps and bruises and, and a lot of learning along that journey. Yeah, I think Jeff and I share that as well. Uh, there are lots of, there are good scars and bad scars that, uh, that life brings. And, you know, ironically, that wasn't an attempted lead-in, but uh, that is kind of what we're going to talk about today. As you know, and as our audience uh, is well aware, today's focus is on major moments in life. And one in particular that we're focused is the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11 and the events of that day. If it's okay with you, I'd love to just jump right into it. Can you take us back to that day or things that you think are relevant to that day and just share with our audience a little bit about your experience and connection to the events of 9-11? Sure. Well, thank you very much for focusing on 9-11 and this 20th anniversary of remembrance of that, um, many would say, a horrific day. Uh, that day for, for me had some personal and professional uh, impact, as I know it did for basically everyone around the globe, and uh, a lot of loss and still a lot of people dealing with it. And we're in the middle of a pandemic now, which, you know, there's parallels in terms of loss and the impact being well beyond just the lives lost, which is significant enough. So I'll take you back 9-11 for me. I was a squadron commander at Bowling Air Force Base with some responsibilities in support, which primarily meant that we did the family assistance and, you know, we had a, a accountability of personnel as well as casualty reporting responsibilities. And we had some missions that we were training for that we thought would never happen. Uh, and in fact, it did that day. Uh, I was actually on the Bowling Air Force base side, which is across the river from the Pentagon, and half of my unit was operated in the Pentagon. And I had a, two chief master sergeants, which as you know, are the top senior enlisted ranks uh, in my office at the moment. We were having a staff meeting. I also had my uh, vice commander, who was a lieutenant colonel. I was a lieutenant colonel commander as well. And we were inside my office dealing with what we saw in New York 
and how it was unusual to have one plane hit, but then two. And we were perplexed, right? That this didn't look like, you know, how could two airline pilots fall asleep or whatever, you know, kind of justification we would make. And we, we went into the meeting and as soon as we started, an orderly room sergeant came in and said, ma'am, the Pentagon's been hit. It was just like automatic response. I looked over my shoulder. I could see in the eyes of my staff meeting members that they were seeing what I had not yet seen. But when I turned around and looked to what was through my back in a picture window, it was like a mushroom cloud over the Pentagon. I put that together with the Pentagon's been hit and other visuals in American history uh, of war. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we're under attack. The story that flowed from that was, was certainly a, a mobilization as a commander to do what we had trained to do and to lead with my team, our response and responsibilities. I'll also share as a mom, uh, both of my kids were in the Pentagon daycare and one was four months old, our youngest and our oldest was almost three. And my husband was retired military, but he was working nearby. And my first and only phone call was to him to say, the Pentagon's been hit. He said he's on his way. And that was it for nine hours. Then we went into work mode and he went into doing what he did to uh, try to uh, retrieve our children and go to a safe place. Wow. It begs the question, how do you, I, military people are great at compartmentalization. You know, in what way were you able to partition those feelings of, you know, my husband's got the stick on this. He's going to take care of Hannah and Heather and find them, locate them, secure them. So I don't have to worry about that. And how much of that was just not possible to do, even though you had to carry on as the commander? So Mark, you ask a really good question and I'm going to answer it in probably a, a way that's different than I would have 20 years ago, uh, because I've had the opportunity to, to teach and research and study authentic leadership and work with some colleagues at Harvard University that study emotion and decision making. And, you know, I, I look back on that and I think what happened at that time was that I, in a sense, integrated as opposed to compartmentalized. What, what that means is I surely was a mom and responding in the same way and as a wife and responding in the same way, you know, to call my husband to kind of recognize something had to happen to, to find the kids, but then also as a commander and a responsibility entrusted upon me to carry out the duties that I swore to defend. And so what I think I did was I just transitioned from automatic response to you know, what most people do in terms of crisis, right? You go into that fight, flight, freeze, and then roll hit me. First, it was probably as a parent, because that was the phone call that I made. And, and then it was as a commander. And I transitioned from roll to roll pretty quickly. So it was integrated, but it was a transition for sure. I think that the emotion uh, was not just mine. I noticed it in people that I had to depend upon for us to carry out our mission. And so that resolve, I think, was helpful because other people were dealing with how do I transition from this fight, flight, freeze, you know, automatic amygdala hijack, <laughs> like this is crisis to 
being productive and to being able to think in the frontal cortex, <laughs> you know, to be able to make decisions and to do what people needed us to do. So in retrospect, I think that's what was going on. I also think that we had trained, uh, the military does this very well. When you train and train and train, you're so much more able to make that transition and to go into being productive, uh, no matter what the circumstances, you do that together. And, and I was really witnessing that where people really were able to step into what we, and go beyond actually what we expected and had trained them to do. I'm struck by the fact that in some ways in that moment, you had two competing sacred uh, values uh, or demands on you. One is as a mom and, and all that goes into that, but then also as a commander to care for your people, to be that person or that force or presence for other people in this moment. Was there any kind of thought process for you that went into being able to separate those or was it just something else that took over that allowed you to integrate them? You know, it's interesting because uh, as I was listening to you talk, the sacred values piece of it definitely was at play, but we hear a lot about how our enlisted force really inspires us. You know, there's an officer enlisted difference, but I think what triggered me was right before I made the phone call to my husband, one of my chiefs of staff, the first sergeant for the Pentagon, basically popped to attention when he saw what had happened in the Pentagon and reported into me and said, ma'am, uh, with all due respect, may I please go into the Pentagon? I knew his role and I knew he would be our only way to know what was happening for our unit on that end. And so I relieved him to go to his duty in harm's way. I think I was inspired by his, his sacred value of he had been my first sergeant to look after the unit in the Pentagon and care for them. And he was asking to go do his duty. And I think in some way that inspired me to say, I also have a duty. And so it was kind of call my husband, you know, and now let's press on with our responsiveness of what we needed to do as a unit. You know, you've had lots of time to think about 9-11 and to maybe even reorganize your memories about what took place and what you did well, what you didn't do well. If you could go back there, knowing you couldn't stop the events from happening, but you could reorganize some of what you chose to do and how you chose to do it. Is there anything that you would say, I wish we had done this or no, I, I really feel like we did everything we could have in the way we should have. Wow. It's a great reflective question. And in some ways I look back and I'm, I'm still somewhat in awe of what the unit and individuals of the unit did to respond that was not only with what we were asked to do, but beyond that, you know, what we actually needed to do to help out. We did our accountability relatively quickly. Um, we prepared people for casualty reporting to be able to meet the increasing demand, despite the fact that the Air Force fortunately didn't have any casualties, we stepped up to support our other services that unfortunately did suffer casualties. You know, we were responsible, not as a unit to identify uh, remains, but we had young airmen who were trained to be able to 
upload retirement paperwork and you know do leave forms and the IDs in our military personnel flight. And they stepped up to do rotations every four to six hours, helping to identify remains. That wasn't in their job jar. And yet they said, this work needs to be done. And they rolled up their sleeves. We got them the kind of help needed to be able to do that awful kind of work but they responded and they did well. So, you know, I look back on it now and it's hard for me. I think my lessons came more after that time period in my own thinking about how I, I did not make an adjustment from leading during crisis for that unit uh, when I made the transition to Colorado to be an academic department chair to go from a large unit with primarily enlisted folks during war to a um, mostly PhD professional environment in Colorado, very small. I think I didn't adapt who I was and my leadership style to that context and those people, even though we were in crisis, you know, with other challenges in Colorado, as you well know, Mark, I think my lessons learned were from that transition after the fact that I didn't make the appropriate style changes to be an effective leader initially. And I had to go through that grown zone is the growth zone to kind of take the humility pill to say, okay, what am I learning now? General Borden, if I could ask just a question, you talked about, you made a phone call with your husband. You talked about there was a nine hour gap before you uh, had a reconnection of information. And just kind of, just a quick reminder for our audience, there was no quick text back then. There was none of those forms of communication where there were, you could constantly touch base during a crisis or whatever the case may be. I recall phone lines, you could barely get through on any kind of phone line back then too. So there was, there was a lot of communication issues during that time. I guess, could you just kind of share a little bit about that? Our communication channels, that was one thing that was a huge challenge. Family members couldn't connect, but we also couldn't connect. That was a challenge with doing accountability as well, because so many people were not able to be accounted for because they were either in transit or cell phone coverage you know, wasn't enabling us to connect. And so we had plans of how we would do accountability if we didn't have, you know, we called it calm out uh, drills. How quickly could we get accountability if you had no communication? We were practicing that. So that's sort of what we had to do. But there were other things happening even locally. We couldn't communicate even in our operational roles. I'm a runner. <laughs> I mean, I, I love to run. I was running literally between buildings in order to connect with our headquarters staff and uh, sell where we were operating from because we had some connectivity challenges there too. Uh, and then it wasn't until actually I heard from a member of my husband's team in the nine hours. And then uh, my sister finally got through to me from New York. <laughs> and, and those were the only two like external uh, able to communicate opportunities I had. Uh, so I think during that time, we were finding every way possible to try to communicate. And we were getting updates through a command center, uh, but it took a little while for us to get that up and running to where we were having more uh, reliable communication to be able to do our duties. How long was it before you saw your husband and kids? So it was a couple of days. And when I finally did, this is a story that I haven't really shared, but when I finally did come home 
to get a little rest because we were still doing 24 hour operations and my vice commander and I were switching off roles. When we got home, I, I live in Alexandria, Virginia, and I was sleep deprived, but you know, had the little ones back home. They had evacuated to a different place, but they were back home, four months old, three years old. And we had a rally that happened that night in the conservation area below our home. And all we could hear was Farsi. And we saw flashlights coming up towards our home from the valley below. And we heard sirens and saw the lights of police on both ends of this sanctuary. It's a conservation area. And what had happened was a lot of people who were from the Middle East, clearly there was a lot of like, oh my gosh, you know, we're being, you know, singled out here for this attack. And they were probably concerned about their own safety and well-being. Uh, so we called the police and they were really all neighbors did because something was going on. We didn't know what, but I was low crawling through our house to grab phones and check on the kids and everything. And that was like, that was two nights right after the 9-11 event that I felt as though I was in a war zone in my own home being under attack as well. And some of that was probably, you know, post-traumatic response, but some of it was there was a reality of something happening that was not what had happened in the past in that sanctuary and that conservation area. Wow. It's hard to imagine. I know from my, my own experiences, I was stationed at Altus, Oklahoma, doing a manning assist while I was actually stationed at the academy. And after that event, um, you know, the base, like all bases, locked down. What do you think, you know, is maybe one or two of the most profound impacts of 9-11 or the events of that day on you personally? But then I'd also like you to project that out as you think about our nation or elements within kind of the, the national security infrastructure for our country. What do you see as the broader impact of that event? Yeah, well, and I'll come back to what you just shared about your experience at Altus in terms of, you know, how that had an impact on us nationally. But let me first answer the personal and professional, like how did it impact me? Professionally, it impacted me in that I had plan to retire at 20 years, you know, with two young children and, you know, remain in, in the area. And 9-11 pretty much inspired me, as I know it did many, to lean into the, the new need for our nation. And so I didn't retire, you know, until many years later uh, and stayed in. Uh, it, it also had an impact personally in that my husband had been retired military and he was working full time and the Pentagon daycare closed and we were without childcare. And so we ended up having to kind of work a nanny situation. And then he became a stay at home dad for the rest of their lives for me to continue in my military service. And so it, it had a, a pretty significant impact on uh, our family and certainly on our daughters. Professionally, I think my continuation of service uh, you know, they were influenced greatly by 9-11 in, in terms of uh, initially reaction to sirens and reaction to, you know, noise and danger in their own way of going from anxiety, which, you know, was a natural response for many people. They then realized that there were people that rescued them from the daycare that day and people that came to into harm's way in order to 
take care of others. And they now are both uh, in their own professional journey uh, in the military, one at the Naval Academy and the other graduate from the Air Force Academy heading to pilot training here soon. So, you know, I, I guess it changed the course of our uh, personal and professional lives as a family, as a nation. I think it's huge. You know, it wasn't an event that we took care of and then pressed on with normal just like the pandemic is not uh, an event that we can't wait to you know, have behind us. It has fundamentally changed us as a people and as a nation. When you have 600,000 people who have died from COVID and we've had a couple in our own family, that's multiplied by many lives that have been impacted. There's no new normal. You can't just press ahead. And so I think what it's done is just like 9-11, after a while, people started realizing, okay, we're not just going to secure the base for right now, right? We have to think about how do we secure it better for the way ahead. We had standoff security from buildings, right, with cones and other things. And then eventually we realized, no, we're in this for the long haul. <laughs> we probably need to build the infrastructure to be a little bit more secure on a natural, you know, day-to-day -day basis. And so I think we're starting to see that with COVID too. We're starting to think about what are ways that we can protect ourselves and protect others in what looks to be, could be uh, more long-term uh, health security, national security type environment. General Bourne, I think that kind of leads to one of the things that you've talked about before. And, and as we maybe talked about before we got on our recording was basically is that in leadership roles such as uh, yours and all leaders, it's how you're working on being versus doing. That sounds like September 11th and COVID and significant events or just even life events. You talked about in your own personal life, there are things that say, okay, how are we going to be while we do what we're going to do? I am so inspired to hear you say that. Uh, being, and I go back to the, the Army has in their doctrine used the be no do model, which is, you know, be is our all of our humanity. <laughs> it's our values. It's our what motivates us intrinsically, extrinsically, who supports us. It's all of that integrity. Character is a huge part of that being. Uh, knowledge and skills are important. And we do that through education and training. And I talked about training earlier. There's so much of that that is um, now happening more efficiently and effectively through augmented intelligence and artificial intelligence, machine learning. The B component is more, and this is not new, right? There's, this, is, this is just more prominent now that how we develop as leaders, as people, as humans in our own self-awareness and acceptance and growth is incredibly important in how we then develop the, the leadership, which is more the social capacity and the, the leading others. I call it, and it's because I teach authentic leadership, a lot of the work, you know, Discover Your True North with Bill George and, and others that, you know, the I and the me, which sometimes we tend to ignore, is so important in the work of we. And so that be component is really so important of our, our centering, our personal and professional growth individually in order to leverage what gives us meaning, which is devotion towards others and, and building others up. And so, I mean, at the service academies, we call it leadership and character, right? Because we need both 
And it's about our own personal growth. It's about lifting others, developing others, and it's about getting stuff done. And it's more important now in this uh, environment than it ever has been. So I appreciate your focus on that with this podcast in particular. Thanks, General Bourne. And this is a good segue into coming to sort of a wrap up or a close of our time together. Can you tell us a little bit and the audience a little bit about where are your energies now? What are you kind of hoping as you think of the next ridgeline of thought and investment in your own kind of life and career? Where are you? Where are you shooting? Thank you for asking the question. And it's an easy one to answer. When I retired from the Air Force Academy, I was called by Harvard, uh, by the Kennedy School, and asked if I'd consider coming to join their mission. And they, they have a mantra at the Harvard Kennedy School, you know, ask what you can do to make the world a better place. Imagine what we can do together from John F. Kennedy. And it really is about developing public leaders. But I have to say when I, and, and I, I'm, I've been there now, I think I'm in my ninth year and it's been a, a continuation of the mission, which I've really enjoyed. Um, but in the middle, I had some pulls on me like running for office. You know, uh, I think what led me to be a general officer and the Dean at the Air Force Academy, you know, I wanted to have disproportionate impact on the world. And so being in some kind of a senior role that has huge impact has always been something that I have been uh, incentivized and drawn towards. I had to kind of reimagine my life in that, you know, I'm now 60 and there's young people, uh, many Kennedy School graduates, many who come to the Kennedy School as executives who are really starting to take on these responsibilities. And so I kind of reframed my impact as being not necessarily being in that role, but helping people in their journey to be successful in roles like that. And so I've been investing most of my time and attention and research in developing others for public service. And I've also been staying involved in the national security business by serving strategically on boards uh, that are in the areas of education and energy primarily. Joe Bourne, I'm sure I speak for Jeff. I'm sure I speak for everybody that is listening. We are so appreciative of you taking the time that you have, and we know it's precious. And so it's just been a wonderful opportunity to hear your thoughts and reflections, particularly about such a profound day in our nation's history, but also a profound day in our personal histories. So thank you very much for being with us. And I extend gratitude right back to you for taking this moment of pause, particularly for 9-11, but your, what you're doing with this podcast extends well beyond that. And I'm grateful for this uh, time to reflect and to reimagine and to get engaged in things that matter, uh, the being component of our lives and leadership. Thank you. Thank you, General Bourne. Mark, that was absolutely humbling. Having not grown up in a military family, but been blessed enough to live in an area next to Fort Bragg, I still can't even imagine the emotions that she went through on September 11th, but how she, her responsibility to her position, to her family, to her sworn oath, she led all the way through and through. At the same time, maneuvered through a very emotional and challenging time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Jeff. I think it's a good example of where preparation meets opportunity. She was in the right place at the right time to be the right leader for 
a group of people undergoing an extremely stressful experience and event, entering into the unknown, and she was leading as one of them, one of those individuals who was carrying the burden of the unknown and all the adversity and did so well with it. So one of the things she talked about was authentic relationships and authentic leadership. Yeah. And I think as we listened to her, she was, I think authentic is the best word for her. You saw the human side of her, you saw the mom side of her, you saw her responsibility side of her as the, uh, as the commander. And one of my favorite things that she shared was when the communications were down, part of her responsibility was running back and forth to the command center to make sure that information was passed and information was received. But it was still nine hours where she received no information on her two children. Right. There was no place that she could run to to get that information. She had to continue the path that she was on and wait for that one to come to her. Yeah. And I liked how she corrected my question. Um, it wasn't a compartmentalization where she bifurcated off or partitioned off that part of her, but that she figured out a way to integrate right. that experience that fear that anxiety and still press forward with what she needed to do through the fog of war and all of the difficulty that she was facing robert lewis talks about he uses the term one face and so basically this is who i am no matter what position i'm in and so i think that she showed a great example about that integration you know september 11th obviously affected people in so many different ways to be able to hear someone's story like that, who was so close, so involved with it, so there, with personal and professional things and people at risk. Yeah, I think that made it all the more believable, uh, more relatable to, I know to me, uh, I would assume also to our audience. I mean, she had real skin in the game and was making decisions with that at play. Mark, as we think about these Sentinel events, and we've had two, I would say, amazing and humbling guests today who have experienced two of America's biggest events. I think a perspective it gives for me is our experiences and our memories are essential to who we are and who we become. And this podcast is about, we say, let's pause and dig into something. And as we move into September 11th and the 20th anniversary, I think it's really important that we do pause and remember this event in a very thoughtful way. There were lives that were lost. There were people's lives who were changed forever. And we also think that it's an opportunity for us to give thanks and appreciate all those who have served the greater good to protect, to see that that never happens again on the soil again. I agree with you, Jeff. I was reminded as you were talking about something Pat referenced several times, which is she was sort of surprised, and I think in a disappointed way, how often people would remark, what was December 7, 1941? What was the attack on Pearl Harbor? You know, where is that? I don't know anything about that. I hope that that is never the narrative of 9-11, that we don't find ourselves fast forward one or two generations and we've kind of forgotten, well, what was September 11? What were the Twin Towers? What was that all about? 
I hope that our generation doesn't pass that on as a legacy to the next generation. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it? That's right. This podcast and this episode isn't a history lesson, but it is meant to be a reminder and to put a human face and a human story on human tragedy, as well as human triumph. I certainly want this podcast to end on a very positive note. One of the really great threads that I think was revealed between Pat's experience and General Bourne's experience is here you have the story of two extremely strong women who were put into history's path and now we see kind of the seed of the future in General Bourne's daughters, Heather and Hannah, two young strong women who are moving forward, taking proactive steps in intentional movement towards service in a way that is similar to those previous generation stories. The opportunity to respond in a crisis is where we are developed, where character comes from, where it's a crucible moment that helps to find uh, future for years to come. That's right. It's, it's the refiner's fire that people talk about. Right. These difficult moments that we experience either personally or collectively are an opportunity for us to refine. Absolutely. On the 20th anniversary of September 11th, we humbly thank all those who listened and joined us today. And our thoughts and prayers continue to go out to those who lost loved ones and friends on the September 11th attacks, along with everyone who has served in response. Again, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Let's Pause. If you liked what you heard, drop a follow, smash a like, or drop us a note at letspause.org.